Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. When Tom Marcus was fresh out of the army, he wanted to build a business that would support him as he traveled the world. He started out podcasting, blogging, and publishing, and ultimately created a foundation for his own success through practical, project-driven apprenticeships supporting seasoned entrepreneurs. In this episode of Hack the Process, Tom will share with us how he builds and cultivates motivated influencer networks for his clients, what it takes to make an online event that can attract the right audience, and why he decided not to grow his own company into an agency when the opportunity presented itself. Today I'm talking to Tom Marcus. He is a publisher and a podcaster and runs a business that does a bunch of things. He's sort of a lifestyle entrepreneur. How are you doing these days, Tom? I'm doing good, David. Things are going really well. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, I'm glad to meet you. And in fact, you've got so many things going on. I'm curious, how do you encompass what your business is? How do you explain to folks what you do? Uh, I'm still kind of working through that piece because it kind of happens organically. Like I get referrals and sometimes there's there's usually like a certain left to right limit to what I can do, but it started with anything online business related, digital products, creating and marketing and selling them. Then I got into publishing where I started publishing books. And then that led to essentially what I'm doing today where I started to, people didn't really want to be published. They just want to help with the marketing and sales of their books. So we started doing book launches, which led to us then doing some really big campaigns, some big crowdfunding campaigns that were really like notable and people recognized me from that. And then that was obviously a big, a lot of referrals came from that. And then it was just kind of like one project after another got into affiliate marketing that way. And so, yeah, now maybe about like 70% of what I do is like affiliate marketing related in some capacity. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was browsing through the various websites and the various projects that you've worked on. And I was trying to, to get a handle on what your focus is because you've gone through so many things and it, it all started with publishing, huh? Yeah. I mean, it started with me blogging and then self-publishing. That was the start. That was the, ultimately that was the thing that I needed to prove to myself that I could do before I would do anything else, obviously. And it was actually just kind of an experiment that I was doing in the last year that I was in the army before I got out. And then I decided to take a year off before I was going to go back. I was going to go to law school, actually. So I got married. My wife and I went to, we took, I took a year off to go travel. So we traveled abroad and I kept blogging. And little by little, I built up a bit of an audience, started to sell my own books, then helped other people like kind of package their knowledge and sell courses and books and programs, worked on some collaborative stuff with some people, different like kind of like little collaborative startups, so to speak, different websites, different projects like that. So it was kind of like all over the board. It was collaboration was a big piece of what I've done. And then it's only really in the last maybe two years where it's like, yeah, I offer like a specific sequence or a specific set of services that I know I'm good at and can provide value for with certain types of people, typically online influencers or educational brands. And we do these type of like very large scale marketing campaigns, usually event-based, time-based, and there's usually education is a big piece of it. So I'm still working on how to better like define that. So people know, yeah, Tom's the guy for that. But 
ultimately happens pretty organically because every time I work on a project, then I get new referrals because it's natural. People are like, oh, how'd you do that? And then people point, my clients usually just point to me. So it's useful. So that in that regard, it's really nice. That's interesting. So one of the things that I picked up on when you said that, you're talking about event-based marketing and you're talking about online events, live events. What kind of events do you usually produce? Yep, online. Strictly, essentially, at this point. I don't know if I've done it in person. We'll do like the online event-based marketing campaign. So it's like a certain amount of time it's going to take place. There's some kind of thing that we're doing. Sometimes it's, you know, people sometimes use the term like launch. Sometimes people use the term marketing campaign. I think the best way to define it is like online event-based marketing campaign, but that's kind of a, a mouthful. And the th- reality is there's a lot that that can, that can fit into that. So it could be like a book launch. It could be a course launch. It could be, you know, a big event to generate traffic, leads, and sales of like, again, a course that maybe has already been out for a while, but we're doing kind of like an open close cart type event. I've done summits, like virtual summits, virtual conferences. And again, we sold things that are both digital products, but also services, in-person events, kind of the whole nine yards. So what we're selling is kind of different than the actual event itself. But my expertise is specifically in the online space and marketing and generating traffic for those events. When you talk about these online events, you mentioned a few different variations. I'm wondering if there's a specialization. or How could you explain to people what you consider to be an online event? Uh, okay, good question. So I think it's that's really good how to define it. I mean, it's it, for me, I look at it and say, well, it's anything where we're going to have something online, some kind of like landing pages or something like that. Like, uh, like here's the core of it. There's got to be something that we're sending people to. And they're typically opting into that thing and they're signing up for it, whatever it is, to take part in it, whether it's a challenge or a virtual event of some kind. And then we put them through an email and essentially like the, the core of it is the email a sales sequence because the email is obviously very powerful that way. But then we have we stack that with things like social media marketing, content marketing, and a bunch of other stuff kind of all geared around this event. So as an example, I worked with Teachable, and they make course creation software. So I worked with them last year on their summit. So their software platform, they sell their software as a service. They provide software that allows you to create, market, and sell courses online. And for this, it was let's do a summit around online education, around online courses. So we brought together influencers and educators, and they all market and share with their list. We're promoting it through obviously the Teachable list. Then we're doing social media marketing, affiliate marketing, paid ads, and all the whole like the whole nine yards. I didn't do all of that. Obviously, my my piece of the puzzle there was is usually typically the influencer marketing piece and the affiliate marketing piece. In some capacities, I have other people that I usually contract out on my team for things like paid advertising, which we can handle, copywriting. So that kind of maybe gives you an idea of it. So it's it's kind of I don't have a really good way to define it to be honest with you. It's 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 like if you know it, then maybe we can work together. And if you don't, <laughs> it's probably not a good fit. If that makes sense. It sounds like it's something that also shifts and modifies itself over time as the market changes. That's exactly it. It it, it totally does. And that's the one thing I've noticed in like even just the last two years, the shift of where are the trends right now? Because I've done a lot of campaigns now. We've probably done like fifty or sixty now, and many of them have you know. I'd say about like at least a dozen are in the six figure category or above. So they're pretty substantial. And it's interesting to see the shift in terms of what attracts influencers and people that can like kind of be your marketing arm in that regard. And then also what's the kind of thing that customers are actually gravitating toward. So like a year or two ago, I think summits were a really big thing and they're still pretty big, but they're not nearly as effective as they were maybe a year ago. 
but collaboration is still very big. So if you can integrate some kind of collaborative nature to whatever you're doing, so you're bringing in these influencers and collaborating with them, you're working with them to produce something, much easier to get influencers on board. And then of course, like making them affiliates or just promotional partners. And so then that's a great avenue to generate traffic and ultimately leads and sales. Okay. So you've used a couple of terms that people might not be as comfortable with or as familiar with, but where you seem to focus in on are influencer marketing and affiliate marketing. Could you explain to us in, in more detail what those two terms really mean? Broadly, I would just say it's leveraging other people's audiences. So it's like you have a product or service and you have, maybe you're building an email list or maybe you have like a social media following or something like that. And that's great. Get your stuff out that way. But you're limited, of course, to the size and reach of your own platform. And I'll, I'll talk about influencer marketing first. It's this idea of, well, let's leverage other people's audiences, people who've actually already built audiences in the space that you want to sell your product or service. So if you're a self-publisher is a good example. So maybe you have a, a platform around teaching something around self-publishing related. Well, there's a lot of people who already teach stuff in that, that niche. There's a lot of people teaching on self-publishing. So conceptually, it'd be like, well, how do we get them on board to share whatever you're doing because it's in that space? So that's kind of it in a kind of really rough way. And then the affiliate piece, affiliate marketing just refers, it's just performance marketing. It's where you don't really pay anybody to advertise for you. You're not taking money out of pocket to get anybody to promote or market anything you're doing. But if they get a sale, you give them a piece of the pie. You give them a commission. And so that's affiliate marketing. So you combine the two, you have influencer marketing, and you combine that with them being affiliates. And then all of a sudden you have these people who have audiences and they're sharing with their lists or sharing with their audience something that you're doing. And usually we like to do it around an event because then it makes it very easy to share. We don't just like to go to an influencer and have them sell their audience on some product or service, though you can. There's definitely a lot of people that do that. My approach is typically more on the collaborative side of things, getting them to be involved in whatever that campaign is and so that they have ownership over it and they're more likely to promote it. And then it's beneficial to them because they're featured in it and all these other benefits. So that's kind of how they kind of align. They're not one and the same, but they can line up pretty well. And I'll say this because not everybody who's an influencer needs to be an affiliate. There's a lot of ways you could actually probably pay an influencer to share whatever you're selling. You probably could pay out of pocket to do it. I typically don't do that, but you can. And then there's reality that sometimes influencers don't want to be affiliates at all. And they do it just because it's a good fit. You have like a really good product, a really good offer, a really good event that's going on. They just want to be a part of it or they just want to share with their audience. So they don't actually necessarily need to be an affiliate. It, that clarifies it, but happy to go more in depth. No, no, that, that really helps. And it, it kind of brings up the question of how do you attract these influencers? Because obviously they've built up their market, they know their audience, and they're protective of their audience, and, and rightfully so. They don't want to start spamming them with things that might not be relevant. How do you convince influencers that, that what you're doing is of value to them, and how do you make it of value to them? Yeah, I'll give you three tips. Three steps, we'll go, go with that maybe. Tip one or step one is don't send any cold emails. It just doesn't work. Cold email doesn't work. And I say that somebody's going to come out and say, oh, I cold email and it does work. It would work if the pool is millions of people that you're reaching out to. But when you're talking influencers, no, there's no such thing as a pool of, million of in, millions of influencers. That by its nature, influencers are rare. And so therefore, don't cold email them. That's rule number one. We can dive into then what could you do instead of that. But that's just rule number one. Don't cold email. Rule number two or step two or whatever it is. I always break it down and say, if you're trying to interact with somebody like that, you need to make it so that it's essentially impossible for them to say no to you. 
like kind of make an offer they can't refuse kind of thing. Not obviously not threatening at all, but Godfather's a great example of that. But the idea being that maybe there's a way you can approach them and have a conversation where it's such an easy thing for them to say yes to. And so I do that by breaking down when I'm doing like email outreach or doing things through social like Twitter. And I usually do a combination of this to actually connect with influencers. I'll find them on like social, I'll sign up for their newsletter, I'll listen to their podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll start kind of connecting with them before I'm pitching anything. And then when I actually do any form of outreach to have like the end state be that I want them to be a part of this new campaign we're doing, I roll it out in a way that it's like very simple, short structure to the email or whatever the message is. Hey, I'm working on this thing. Thought it would be a good fit because your audience is this and you've spoken about this. Would you be interested in more details? And then they say, well, yeah, because it's like vague enough, but interesting enough. And then I get them more information and say, are they, you know, does this seem like something that would be a good fit? And then they'll say yes and or no. And so it's just the idea of like breaking this down because a lot of people make a mistake of going straight into like a pitch and you're going to get an immediate no. So you have to build up into it. So I like to use sequential emails and sequential messaging, trying to get like one yes for each email that I send over a period of like, I don't know, three to five emails or something like that. It's typically my structure. So that's rule number two. And then I guess rule number three, in my opinion, is follow up. You send out the first, you know, no matter who you're emailing or reaching out to or messaging, important people are busy. You know, they just are. So you have to imagine that if they have an audience, they're, they're of importance to their audience. They're doing important things. They're busy. And so if they're busy, they're not going to have time for any kind of thing that might be like a solicitation. And so you, that's why you definitely don't lead with like a pitch but you lead with where the value can be, number one. And then number two is if you do reach out to them and they are interested and you actually can confirm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. This is something I might want to be a part of. I'm, I'm, I'd like to hear more. You should continue to follow up with that person until you get a yes or no. And that's a big thing because I'll, I'll follow up you know, seven, 10 times. If somebody's indicated their interest in something and that will be one of my follow-up emails in that sequence I told you about. And if they don't respond to me, I'm just going to keep following up until they do and because they've expressed interest. There's a fine line there between you know, if you haven't actually spoken to somebody and you start emailing and you just keep following up, following up, following up, that can obviously be bad. But if you've actually already connected with them in some way, shape, or form, they've engaged you and said that they're interested, then it's just following up. It's crazy how many people follow up after like the third or fourth or fifth or seventh email and they're thankful for it. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I'm actually coming out with a program called Influencer Marketing Method specifically around this. Because it's like, to me, it's not confusing, but I, I, I do think back like four years ago, I didn't know this. I did it all sorts of roundabout ways and I was really insecure about it. And now I realize like, no, it's actually pretty straightforward, but you have to approach it, I think, methodically. And you have to kind of be smart about how you're approaching these influencers because you only have one shot and the pool is not infinite. Yeah, that methodical approach, that, that kind of begs the question, what process do you follow to keep track of all of that? Do you have assistants working with you? Do you have specific tools or techniques that you follow to make sure that that gets followed up properly? Yeah, so over the last like two or three years, I think I've kind of built the model maybe like two or three years ago, and then I've been iterating and improving it ever since. And so now it's, I have a def definitely have like a, a, a software or, or tech stack that, uh, that I use, and it's, mine is like, so you need a good CRM, you need something to some kind of tracking mechanism. Maybe the CRM has it, maybe it doesn't. I use just Google Sheets. I mean, just any kind of like Excel would work just fine. So some kind of tracker to see what's happening. And then that way, that's also a way to track where you're at in conversation. So literally you can kind of do it manually. You probably could do it without the CRM. And if you just had that spreadsheet, you could probably track and do everything in there. But so I'll have a CRM I actually use contextually. I'll use Google Sheets to build out these lists, these outreach lists and who I think is going to fit and why and all these other things. And I'll track in there as I make these engagements and I get follow-ups and kind of update that 
tracker as it goes. So I know the status of every conversation that's happening. I'll usually do maybe 100 at a time kind of thing or 50 to 100. So it's not the, it's not the craziest thing to keep track of. And then I'll, another tool that I think is pretty fundamental on the follow-up pieces. I use followup.cc, but there's like Rebump, there's I think Boomerang, and there's probably a dozen other tools that use this as well. It's just essentially a very easy way to rebump an email that if it wasn't replied to in a certain number of days, they automatically get a reply. And you can craft out what that reply is or what that email is. So if I do my initial outreach and it's, hey, I thought you might be interested in this, and I don't get a reply in three or four days, I might say, hey, just check in to see if you actually had a chance to look at this. If it's not a good fit, you can let me know. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. Then I'll do maybe one more, you know, three to five days later and say, hey, check in one last time. If I don't hear from you, I'll, I'll assume that you're, you're not interested in this. And that's kind of my approach for that initial one if I'm not, if I don't get any interest. Often, though, I'll get maybe 50% of people to respond to that, and then it's on to the next one. And so I'll have different follow-up sequences for different emails that I'm sending to people because... You know, there's different content. There's a, at least the way I structure it, there's a different purpose for each email that I send. And it's like to get them to agree to like a specific, very simple thing. Like, are you interested? Yes. Do the dates line up? Yes. You know, and then you get into the more nitty gritty details, whether that's then transitioning to hop on a call or doing a V email, depending on if you already have a good relationship with somebody that can be, I guess, managed or facilitated, whichever direction makes the most sense in, in that capacity. Okay, that clarifies a lot. Your first tip was don't cold email, but it sounds to me like it's sort of a building process where you're slowly warming up from a lukewarm email to a hot email to the point at which they're actually engaging with you and you have a relationship with them. Yeah, and so I'll actually do it before, typically, if I can, I'll try to. Sometimes clients will be like, please reach out to these people. And it's like, okay, I'll do that. It doesn't surprise me when the response rate is way lower. You get a lot more no's or just a lot more no response. So my preference is, and... I always try to abide by this is there's like three or four things I want to do before I ever send an email. It's like find them on Twitter because most people that they're an influencer are on Twitter and Twitter is a very low barrier to entry or low barrier to communication type platform, right? It's like not very personal in a lot of ways, whereas like Facebook is a little bit more personal, you know, so it's like messaging on Facebook is a little odd if you don't know the person, but actually tweeting somebody if you don't know them isn't odd at all. So it's like kind of knowing that aspect of that social platform in particular. So Twitter then chances are this person's blogging or podcasting or has a YouTube channel. So then it's commenting on those or leaving a review on iTunes or commenting on their YouTube or whatever it is. And then usually they'll have a newsletter. So I'll sign up for that. And then I'll reply to that if I see something good come in. And then by that point, they probably see my name and my face enough where if I were to do an e email, I can, one, they might recognize me, but if they don't, I can reference those things. Hey, we had that conversation on Twitter or hey, I, you know, I left that review the other day or hey, I just shared your most recent blog post or I commented on this or just referencing something, especially if they actually interacted with you. That's another good indicator. If like you do those things and the person's not really responding, probably the kind of person you don't want to necessarily pursue in any way, shape or form. So it's it's science and it's art. And that's the art piece is, is knowing when it's appropriate to, to actually, when it's going to be worth your time and effort to like reach out and connect with somebody. And I use indicators like, does the person actually you know respond to comments if they have a blog? You know, if I see somebody with a blog and they're writing and people are commenting and they don't reply to it, I'm like, I mean, that person doesn't care. You know what I mean? But the person who actually does reply to comments, well, that person is in it. They're, they're responding. They care about their audience. So that's a good indicator. So there's things like that. In my line of work, I get used to looking for those indicators.
That makes sense. This sounds like it's science, art, and also a whole lot of labor. Because I'm thinking, if I had a list of 100 influencers I was trying to reach out to, and I was tweeting at them and commenting and getting involved in all of those different aspects of the relationship to try to build up that warm relationship, that feels like a, a lot of effort to put in. You have to really be committed. And I'm imagining there are, there are a lot of tools that you need to use or maybe assistance at that point. Yeah, you, I mean, one is that's the cool part is you actually could pieces of this you could absolutely outsource like a VA and if you have somebody like a really intelligent VA because they're not all created equal and somebody has like a really good grasp of like English and can write well and then you could outsource probably quite a bit of it so the process I use like the things you don't need to be doing yourself is probably that initial list build so that saves you a lot of time if somebody else can come and just create a list of things based on your parameters of who you're looking for I want influencers who are self-publishers or I want influencers who are are like sales, sales experts, sales gurus, like that can speak to sales. Or I want, I want to tap into any platforms who that teach about you know health, but specifically in that health genre. Let's get specific. Maybe about a certain type of, maybe about diabetes or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of ways you get more and more narrow, of course. But that is the kind of thing that, with that and uh, some other instructions and saying, here's kind of what I want to see. You know, the URL, the name of the person who's running the blog, what their bio is, like what their best contact email is or contact page, maybe the last few blog posts that they have, et cetera, et cetera. That you could absolutely outsource. There's no real reason for you to be like scouring the internet for these things when if you know what you're looking for, you can probably create that parameter and outsource that for for very, very cheap. Then the next step is that then saying, okay, well, what is the process I'm going to use? And that's the thing. People, most of the time, people just don't have a process for this. And I think it's overwhelming when you don't have a process. I think when you have a process, you know, these are the, these are the five to 10 steps I need to take before I send any kind of email or this kind of pitch email. And even knowing what that, that sequence of pitch emails is going to be, if you have a process for that, all of a sudden it becomes very, it's very manageable. And you can do probably hundreds of these a month yourself. And it's not, it's not that time consuming because you have the structure. You know that there's certain things you have to hit. You could usually bulk task this, like set aside like a three or four hours a day, you know, whether it's like connecting on Twitter for like one day a week kind of thing, or you do it like one hour a day and you just know that that has to be part of your routine. And the, the reality is every business owner is not going to get value out of that, but some will. And so if you're like in that kind of business, just like, yeah, I have a product or service that I can sell online. And I'm in this space where people are typically social and share this kind of stuff then you might benefit from having influencers promote or market your stuff for you. And if that's the case, then it helps to be able to get a lot of them and then get them to point to a specific thing or a specific event all at once. And that's where you get these like huge launches and stuff like that. It's interesting. And you're doing this for clients as well as for yourself. Are you presenting yourself as the contact for something like that? Or do you act as a persona for your clients when you do that? Yeah, I've never done the persona thing, although I think that'd be a probably smart idea, but I don't. So like you absolutely could. And so again, the stuff I teach, a lot of times I'll tell some people who want to hire me and I'm like, you'd be better off, you know, hiring somebody or having somebody part time. And if you want, I can consult with you and get the system set up, but just doing yourself. Cause otherwise just, there's a certain income level where if somebody's not there, it just doesn't make sense for me to work with them and vice versa. And so there's that. And the reality is I think anybody could actually take the system and apply it themselves or have again, a good portion of it run by a VA or somebody on their team. Because it really is, it just, there's definitely attention to detail that's needed. You got to be relatively creative and relatively smart to be able to differentiate things. But beyond that, like the basic stuff, the most time consuming stuff can be outsourced. That's the nice part. But yeah, I'm usually doing this for clients. And so for me, I'm actually, I haven't really ever done it for myself that I can think of. Because it's funny enough, I've just always had so many clients that that's where I, I do it for. I've never really had a product or service that I 
have ever felt the need to leverage influencers or affiliates for. Now that might change in 2018. I'm, I'm planning some stuff where I'm, I'm actually going to, you know, use some of the techniques and the strategies that I use for clients and actually implement them in my, my own kind of core business, TomWorks.com, that blog and some of the things I'm creating around that. But no, it's, it's funny. It's all, it's like 99% of it has been for clients. No, oh, it feels like you must have used some of these techniques for yourself in order to build up that abundance of clients in the first place. I'd say if anything, it was more good luck. Um, and then also making some decisions that panned out that were, I wasn't intentional about in the beginning, but certain things that I did that set me up for success to do that now. And, and one example is a podcast. And so I started my podcast back in like 2012 or 13 or something like that. And it's crazy, but I, if I look back on it, I think the majority of my clients have also been on my podcast. And so that's an interesting thought. I don't know for what it's worth. Uh, so that's why I continue to, continue to do a podcast, whether it's because it's you know client relationships or it's building new relationships with potential affiliate partners because the type of people I'm, I'm interviewing and bringing onto my podcast are online business owners, typically. Sometimes it's outside the bounds there, but now all of a sudden you can realize like, yeah, that's actually a really great mechanism for me to get clients and then also get potential affiliate partners or potential influencer marketing partners, anybody who might promote or share something I'm working on. So yeah, the podcast, but again, it was no, it was never the intention with the podcast to do that. It just ended up winding, it ended up being that was a very effective way to get clients and, and to also get partners and to build that that network. Because that's the other thing too, that as you do this, it compounds. So you'll have a good conversation with somebody, they'll introduce you to somebody else, and or you can make sure that you include that into your process, that you are asking for intros and referrals. Then all of a sudden, the work starts doing itself in some ways. You know, it's it's less, at that point I'm at, I don't do too much like list building anymore unless I'm going into a new space or a new niche. But at this point, I have a pretty solid foundation of who's doing what in, in the few major niches or industries that I work in. And so it's not something I need to constantly list build for anymore, but that just getting intros from our partners and stuff like that, it's the fastest way to just continue to grow that. So that's the nice thing. It's like you do this for the right way and you build out a referral network, which is really cool. That's awesome. And it sounds to me like the business probably evolved as you were doing this. So back when you started your podcast, were you already doing this kind of business or did that evolve as you, as you worked through it? Yeah, no, it didn't exist then because I was just doing my own thing. I was just blogging to just get over my own fear of blogging. And I podcasted just to get over that fear. And I just was experimenting, you know, looking at these other bloggers who I was interested in saying, wow, that's interesting that they can make a full-time living doing this. Like if they can do it, surely I should be able to. But if I can't, that's okay. I'll go do something else. But yeah, that first year off, I was able to, you know, essentially break even on my travels, which was the biggest thing that I wanted. I was like, if I'm, we're going to go travel for a year, we break even. That's awesome. I expected to go in debt. I go get, get a job, but it didn't, didn't work out that way. But it was because I built that foundation. And for me, it was it was nice, though, too, because I knew that I guess I was optimizing for just learning and connecting. And so come to today, like the, that stuff's still paying off for me because I wasn't like rushing to get sales of something. And I wasn't. And that's another interesting thought, too, is I wasn't trying to sell anything myself. So I wasn't actually using these techniques for myself at all. And so I never and arguably one could look at that and say, well, that probably helped because I wasn't coming off trying to solicit anything. Like usually it was, hey, come on my podcast or hey, I'd love to interview you for this or hey, I saw it's all totally genuine and legitimate. And still today, I think what I do is absolutely the same. But it was interesting in that time period 
that was it. So it was always from a place of, you know, one, I would usually try to go out of my way to help other people. And I still do that. Like with these influencers and the stuff I'm talking about, usually I am sharing their stuff or I'm retweeting them or I'm writing reviews. These are all beneficial things for people. You know, the the people that run these sites and and these influencers, like they want to be noticed and they want to be known. If you take like 10 minutes out of your day to write a review on a podcast, like that means a lot to people who have a podcast. Or if you like leave a comment on a blog or if you reply to a newsletter, those are things that actually matter to people because they, they're typically, most of these people that we work with, that I work with, are audience oriented. So those kind of thing, things matter. So I look back and say, yeah, it was just kind of fortuitous for it to have panned out this way, but it was never my intention to like build up this database. It just kind of happened organically. Well, I'd love to dig into that first year and how you got started with all of this. You came out of a military background, if I recall correctly. And so you, you had a very disciplined routine and then suddenly you are free and you are traveling the world and not sure where your income is coming from. I'd love to see how you moved through that transition. Yeah. So for me, it was always, I, I, I know I can go back to work. I can get a job. I'm not worried about that. I was never worried about that. So, but I also didn't really plan ahead and I had, didn't really have any kind of runway. So that was kind of ignorant and stupid. And I wouldn't recommend people do that. Like have a, some sort of like financial runway if you're going to be quitting your job. But I didn't, and I didn't really care because I totally was expectant that I was like, um, you know, whatever, we're going to travel for a year. I might go into some debt, but I'm going to get back and I'm going to go, whether it's law school or go some other route. But that was, I think it was going to be law school. So I was like, well, eventually, you know, I'm going to rack up debt, whatever, I'll be okay in five or 10 years or something like that. So that said, when I did that, I didn't really think much about that as we traveled. I just enjoyed the travel and I enjoyed the blogging and I liked writing and I liked communicating with people. I liked learning from people and connecting with them. It also afforded me the chance to actually speak because I started getting known a little bit. So some people in like Singapore invited me to speak and Australia. Yeah, weird, like Southeast Asia area where like old into Tom and it's like nobody even knows me in the States. But it was interesting to build up like a bit of a following that that region of the world. It was nice because that was the part of the world that we were in for a, a pretty long time. So as I was doing it, it was literally just that. It was like, well, I want to keep blogging. I want to keep growing this newsletter. I want to keep getting people, like more and more people to subscribe. And then I was doing the collaborative things, as I mentioned before. So it was like, I worked with John Lee Dumas and Antonio Centeno on high speed, low drag. It was a veteran oriented kind of online business incubator type program. Cause these two guys were both veterans and are crushing it in their core businesses. One is entrepreneur on fire. The other is real men, real style, huge, absolute, just these guys are crushing it. And so I came in as kind of the person to put it all together because they didn't necessarily have time. So I realized that was one thing I could do. I was like interested enough and I was hungry enough and I'm, I think, fast learner and also, and even if I'm not the fastest learner, I'll put in the time it takes to learn and figure things out. And I'm also, I think, a creative problem solver. That's, if you can find a creative problem solver, that's, that's money, I think. And I don't say that to toot my own horn, but I just say that that's how I was able to actually then work with these guys and bring them value. So these are two two big influencers, two two people that are doing really well and doing even better now. And they brought me into the fold with no I had no portfolio at that point. Like I had been blogging a little bit. I kind of put the podcast together, but I was a, I was a nobody. But connected, we we got along and that's what we decided to put together. So that was just an example of like one collaborative project I worked on, but I worked on maybe a half dozen of these things with different collaborators and it afforded me the chance to work on a lot of different things and also hedge my bets that way so that yeah some of them didn't work out too well but some worked out really well and those paid my way as I was writing and self-publishing my own books and then as I started my own publishing company while I was traveling as well so we published a few books while we were traveling that year and again it was like not a ton of money but it was enough money to to support me and my wife as we traveled and then also just to prove to myself, like, maybe I have what it takes to make this bigger. 
if if I try to go bigger. So collaborating with these powerhouse influencers, it feels feels like was a critical part of this role, and I'm sure you you learned a lot from them along the way. Hundred percent, yeah. And that was to me that was the reason I wanted to do it. I wrote a book called Collaborate, all about it, and and that's the idea. Was it's a huge opportunity right now for anybody, but so many people want to go their own way, or they want to be like they like this lone wolf, or I'm a solopreneur, like championing that as if that's a good thing. And number one, I don't really think that really exists. You're either you might be a sole proprietor. But a solopreneur, like what is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is somebody who builds an asset and leveraging different things, people and technology. So there's really no such thing, in my opinion, as like a solopreneur, number one. And I think when people approach it that way, they miss out on this huge opportunity to leverage other people's audiences, other people's you know wisdom. You can learn so much faster when you work with people who've already been where you want to go and not just like buying their books and buying their courses, but actually working with them. Well, how do you work with them? Well, maybe you work for free. And that's what I did. And I worked for, on an equity basis, essentially, or a revenue share. So I'm not, I don't need to be paid for this because I didn't care. I didn't, I, did, I was like, I know just working with them, I'll, I'll learn. But I was also pretty, pretty darn set on making sure that it was profitable so that I would earn my piece of the pie. And I, and I do that to this day. Like I essentially just get paid on the profit that I generated for other people. It's a certain mindset, I know. But I would you know, challenge anybody who's, who's thinking about that. It's like, consider the people that you could work with. Even if that means working for free or in some kind of rev share capacity, if you're just getting started, the best place to do it. But come in and don't be general or vague or useless. Those are not, you're not improving the world that way. Look at things that you can fix and problems that you can solve. And, and if you can solve those problems for bigger name people who are busy and you can actually deliver and actually ship things, that's the key, ship. A lot of people have like, I'm an ideas guy or something like that. It's like, well, you're, you're useless to me. But somebody who can actually take an idea, implement it, and then at the end, there's like this tangible thing that people are buying or something like that. Well, that person's worth their weight in gold. It sounds like you've taken the, the concept of mentorship and kind of brought it to the level of apprenticeship. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a sad thing that apprenticeship is like, sounds like it's something from like the Middle Ages when you say the word, when it should be totally embraced by a culture because it's such an amazing way to learn. I think everybody should apprentice. I think we got away from it because everybody goes the BA route and gets their degree and then hopes that that's somehow going to get them in some middle management position somewhere. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But that's kind of going away, number one. Number two, I think you're actually seeing, you know, in ter terms of societal trajectory right now is that shift more towards tradecraft and, and, and trade work. And so then that's where apprenticeship is like really big. But I think you could absolutely combine apprenticeship in the online space and the tech space and the business space. I mean, there's so many things that have to be done on a daily basis. If somebody can just come in and do those things and deliver on that, I'm sure there's a piece of the pie that they can have in almost any any business. Not And now not everybody's going to be open to that. Not everybody's going to want to allow that or, or trust it. But I, again, I was fortunate enough that I think the way I was able to connect with people, that they were open to taking a chance in that regard minimizing their risk because they didn't really have to do anything and I could just kind of leverage their credibility and then just do all the work all the groundwork and make it happen I think what a brilliant simple way to get started like you know maybe consider that versus like trying to I still think everybody should I think everybody should blog everybody should have a podcast if they can I think content creation and teaching is the best way to learn so you should be teaching but then just look for ways that you can connect with other people and actually work with them and build co-create something and just you got to be the driver of it though and I think that's the thing I think a lot of people at the end of the day don't want to or can't or I don't know what the word is for it, but don't just ultimately don't ship. And so they'll have great ideas, but then what they produce, it's like they never actually gets out the door, never interacts with the, the audience or interacts with the public or, or any potential buyers. And it's like, that's totally worthless. 
I would love it if you could walk us through that, the revenue share model that you worked out with these folks. Because I'm sure people out here are thinking I could go volunteer to work for somebody for free, but you know, maybe I would learn something along the way. How did you structure that so that it was something that you had some skin in the game for? Yeah, so I think I've done this like at least like three or four times come come to mind, and I probably did more, probably done maybe a half dozen at this point, and I probably would be open to it in the future. But one, it has to start with a project. It can't start with like, that's the, I guess the difference between that and like just being an intern. The world doesn't need more interns, but maybe the world needs somebody like you to come along and actually lead a project and ship it and make sure it gets, and it gets done and gets out there. Then all of a sudden, like we need those people. An intern is kind of a person who just like follows along and like does what they're told. And it's great for bigger companies. But if you're trying to get into this online space or do anything creative, it's not useful unless you're in the biggest company. So if you're talking about working with small online businesses and stuff like that, whether it's like three to 10 employees or something like that, maybe that's usually the realm of where I was working with in terms of collaborators, usually in that space, because they know what they're doing. They are, they're like doing really well in their, their individual areas, but they're at max capacity with what they're doing, but they might be interested in this other project or they are interested in this other project, but they just don't have the bandwidth. They can't give up much of their time and they can't really give up much of their own team's time. So that's a, a thing to consider. Number one, And then the second thing is making sure those people you're working with or reaching out to or connecting with, they fit that mold of, yeah, they probably have good beachhead or whatever in what they're doing, but maybe they could be doing something bigger or better with their platform if they, or this unique project that they maybe don't have time to do. And it could be pretty simple. It's like, look at who you admire, who's in that space that's doing that. And then say, what could they be doing better with their, like, what could get them more leads or more sales? Those are the two questions. If you can help somebody get more leads or sales, and you can say, this is like the project we could work on that I believe would get you more leads and sales. It's something that if I'm getting this, if somebody's soliciting something like that, here, Tom, here's how I can get you more clients or more affiliates or more partners or whatever it is, I'm going to start listening. And if this person is saying, I'm also going to run it start to finish, and I'll just need you for guidance and maybe a few other things, and we can articulate that, then my interest is going to be pretty sky high because it's, it's very little risk on my part because I just have to provide that essentially that advisory, that support, maybe contribute to some things, but this other person is essentially running it. And that's the biggest thing. Actually running something start to finish is the biggest time suck. And you realize that's why like the CEO is like a CEO of one company, usually not a CEO of five companies. Like that you pretty rare if that even happens. I mean, I guess you have Elon Musk or something like that, but pretty darn rare because if there's not somebody who's the person driving this, this thing forward, then it usually doesn't get done. So that's kind of like the basis of it. And I go into more depth in my book. It is called Collaborate. It fits the bill here of what we're talking about. So if anybody's interested in that, go to collaboratebook.net and you can download the ebook or or buy the hardcover. Fantastic. And we'll definitely have that in the show notes as well for people. Awesome. And I've noticed one of the things about your publishing, you publish a lot of your books on a pay what you want basis. I'm curious about that model. Yeah, that's actually just one of the experiments I was doing when I was traveling. I was like, well, I was kind of scared at the time. I mentioned that like to blog and to podcast and these things. And the idea of getting, putting my work out there publicly was intimidating. And so then you compound that by saying, well, I'm, I'm now going to put a price on these things that I'm, I'm writing and publishing. Like, I don't even know if I'm a good writer. I don't even know if the ideas are worthwhile. And all of a sudden I'm going to try to package that and sell it. It just felt disingenuous. And so for me, it was like, well, how could I just roll this out? Like, I don't want to roll it out for free. I want people to actually pay, but I also don't, I think it's kind of arbitrary if I put $10 on this ebook. Like, what if I put that and I get like 10 sales? I'm going to feel like, I'm going to feel horrible about myself. So I looked at it and just said, well, how do I just mitigate any like emotional downside risk? And I was like, well, number one, don't make it free because that proves nothing. Number two, don't put a, a fixed price on it. Then I'm left with pay what you want pricing. And there weren't a lot of people who were doing anything with this, but I just said, here it is. You can take it for free or you can tip if you like and, and buy me a beer or, you know, a steak dinner or something like that. 
And that was cool because it got me over that fear. I now have no problem pricing things, you know, and putting a dollar of value to, to my worth in different capacities. But in the beginning, I was very nervous about that. Well, the cool part is it actually ended up being relatively lucrative. And if you looked at it, I haven't done the pulled the stats in a long time. But when I was doing this, then I started kind of like teaching people how I was doing it. And then I wrote a book on it called The Complete Guide to Pay What You Want Pricing. Because that was just, it was just experimental one thing after another. I was like, maybe I can teach on this. Because people were responding so positively to some of the blogs I was writing about what I was doing with Pay What You, pay what you Want Pricing. So I like noticed that there was like an interest in this for sure. And I was like, well, nobody's written a book on it. So I'll just go through my process. I'll interview a bunch of people, put it together, make sure it's coherent, make sure it actually is legit. And this is the sequence that people follow that are successful when they leverage this, this type of pricing technique. So I did all that. I mean, the ultimate thing it came back to was that if I remember correctly, the majority of people will not, you either will not pay or will pay the minimum. So if you like a minimum dollar amount, like a dollar, the majority will pay just a dollar or if it's free and the majority will take it for free. So that's interesting, but sounds like common sense. The second thing that's interesting is that maybe about 25% or 30% will actually pay something. And then about 5% will pay about 10x more than if you had put a retail price on it. So all of a sudden it actually evens out. So if I look at some of my eBooks, they average $5, $10, $15 or something like that per like in terms of like actual like sales or average revenue per purchase or average purchase price, which is interesting because then you, what I'm doing is I'm able to actually get this out to more people. And I don't actually necessarily, I'm not necessarily negatively affected by the fact that the majority of people are taking it for free because there are people who are generous and want to contribute and they, they understand why I'm doing it. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to support this guy. I mean, just the other day, I got a $200 contribution for one of my books. It's like, that's pretty darn cool. But these are the, that's the 5% that gives so much more than everybody else because they get it. And that's huge. And that's where it can be really powerful. So there's a lot of other things to consider if you're selling something outside of digital products like services. I've done experiments with that. I used to do pay what you want consulting and coaching, not really coaching, but consulting and advisory stuff and got hired by companies all around the world and was averaging, I think, $150 an hour. So it was like not chump change, you know, it was by any means. And the fact that it was like I could get to a level like that pretty consistently, it meant the person who's paying me, like who would contribute $10 or $20 for an hour of my time would be balanced out by the person who would pay me $200 or $250 an hour for my time. So again, lots of ways you can carve this up, but it, it ended up being pretty interesting. So I've stuck with it for a lot of my books. That is fascinating. It's a counterintuitive result, but it, it's certainly something to learn from. So one of the things that I was curious about, you've taught yourself a lot of this along the way just by trial and error, but I'm curious if you did any training or how you studied to learn how to do some of the things that you're doing. Yeah, it was just, it was mostly just through trial and error because if you look back, I mean, I, I got a degree in Russian and human geography. Yeah, that doesn't apply to 99% of the world. I buy a lot of books, obviously. I read a lot of books. I purchased a good number of courses to go through how people do what they do, whether it's from like blogging to course creation to most things. And then otherwise I read, buy a lot of books on these subjects too, but also just having a lot of conversations with really smart people. If you have enough foundation, that should give you enough to be able to speak the language and then ask good questions. And it's crazy how much more you can learn just from that. So I've, I've had thousands of conversations. I mean, my week is composed of probably like, probably at least like 10 hours of conversations a week. I mean, it's something which I don't know if that's absurd or not. Maybe it's more than that. I don't know. But I think I'm doing calls all the time. And, and they're usually with really smart people doing really creative things. So just think how much you can learn from that. I, and that, that's where I would say I get the, the most amount of value was, yeah, reading the books, yeah, taking the courses, but also just having conversations with smart people and then being able to ask them like very specific like you know questions that because I can speak their language, they can give me actually the answers is actually useful. So if you're just getting started out and you don't really you can't really speak the language. It's really hard to ask smart questions that'll benefit you. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's, it's iterative. And I would just say, if you're, 
if you don't have experience in this field or whatever that you're going, you don't need it. It's, you can learn it as you go. And I think apprenticeship is another kind of speaks to that point of collaboration and, and these kind of things speak to that. No, that makes perfect sense. And you know, they, they say that the people you surround yourself with are the people that you will become. So these conversations, I mean, that's part of your routine. That's part of how you're making, making this work. I'm curious if you have like a mastermind group or people that you get together with on a regular basis. Yep. Really good buddy of mine. He put this together, like, I want to say three or four years ago, we've been in the same group. So it's like four of us and we meet up every, every Friday. We usually take some time off in the summers and we do it like every month, but otherwise it's weekly. And I've been with that group for like three or four years, which is incredible. Before that I had bounced around between like one or two kind of masterminds. And it was great because at the time I was like the person just getting started and I did buy into, I remember now I remember I actually did purchase into Jonathan Mead's community paid to exist who ended up publishing his book. That was one of the nice things when you pay for things like this and you're interested in the people who are doing it, there's always some way you can serve them that's beneficial, but that can also benefit you. So I'm always looking for that opportunity. So yeah, I, like, I ended up publishing him, which is really cool, but that wasn't the interest I had going into it. It was like, I want to learn from this guy who seems to be doing it right. And so I did with he helped facilitate like putting together mastermind groups. That was when I didn't know what that was. And it was a really weird thing. And I was like at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel and all these people had like websites and stuff like that. I didn't even have a website, but it's crazy how fast you learn. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, okay, actually maybe I'm, I'm pretty advanced now and maybe I need to leave this group now. And that's kind of where I got to in a number of these. So now I have that one that's been pretty organic that we've been with for like three or four years. And then I, I'm in a paid one, you know, meets three times a year, which has been pretty interesting and pretty cool. I probably go to maybe like three to five events a year. It's way more than enough for me to like connect with a lot of people, meet in person, make it, you know, that takes it to the next level. But even that when I was traveling around the world, like, yeah, I do meetups every now and then in the different countries I'm a part of or the different countries that I was visiting at the time but it wasn't necessarily the core thing I was doing. So I would say that you don't need to make in-person a, a priority, but I think it's really helpful. Is your uh, weekly mastermind a co-located one or is it remote? It's remote. I mean, everything I do is remote. I mean, I'm in just north of Aspen, Colorado. There's no such thing as local here. <laughs> cool. I'm curious, you know, the structure of your business right now. Are you a one-man show or how do you, how do you structure your business? I've started, I started solo um, in that regard, like just blogging. Then as I got, I started to get some traction. I actually did some higher. I've always contracted pieces of what I do. So even from the get go, there was definitely certain things I was contracting. Like I think I did some of the podcast editing for myself and then very quickly realized like, I don't want to be editing my own podcast. Like that's not something that's appealing to me at all. And that would limit me to continue to do these podcasts. So that was like one of the first things outsourced. Then I got like a VA, a couple of VAs, and that started to help manage my calendar and some other things and do menial, kind of menial tasks, but that were important, like add somebody, add this person to this course or whatever it is, or create this link or whatever, you know? So there's always been that. And then I actually hired full-time employees starting in, I think it was last year, beginning of last year, maybe before that. Anyway, but yeah, so then I've, at that point, then we grew up, grew to about, I want to say like five full-time employees, including myself, but I've whittled that back down now and it's me and essentially like two other full-time employees. The reason for the fluctuation there was one, just to experiment and see what happens. Like if we have more people, can we do more? And then I realized it actually came up against a wall when it came to this, some of the stuff I was doing with clients. I was like, I can only do so much effectively. And unfortunately I'm not trying to grow an agency and I would have to hire more aggressively and be more aggressive about getting new leads and stuff like that. Right now, and I realized that was this, I had to take inventory of myself and what I was trying to build, and I realized it wasn't an agency, and I was kind of inadvertently moving that direction. So I had to take that back and say, okay, we're going to go back to more contractors for certain things and reduce the, the team size. 
But yeah, so now it's essentially just three of us and then with a, with a bunch of stuff that's contracted out. And I don't know how it's going to change or grow in the future, but I did come to that realization. I was like, yeah, I don't really want an agency, that's for sure. And there's something nice to the fact that it's like I don't actually need new business and I can let it come organically to me right now. I, a lot of people would just listen to that and be like, that's a horrible, like lazy way to do it. But I'm like, it works for me really well. And the nature of what I do is such that almost any time I work on a project, I'm going to get new business. So I don't, as long as I keep just doing what I'm doing, it'll keep coming. But if I wanted to grow the agency, I'd have to be really aggressive about, you know, marketing and selling. And I realized that's not what I want to do. Like, I don't have any interest in that. So long, long story short, in that regard, my team is about three right now and it's been bigger. And I think right now it's actually kind of at a nice size and we'll see where it goes in the future. And it sounds like you've really crystallized the direction that you want to head in, which it's, it's important. You've, you've come to the point where, you know, who cares if somebody says that the way you're doing it isn't the way that they would do it. You're doing it the way that you want for the kind of results that you're trying to accomplish. It's been a lot of thinking and then experimenting and just testing things out and having a lot of conversations and just getting that clarity. It didn't, I still don't think I'm that clear on it, but it's, it's work in progress, you know, like everything else. Well, you've got a bunch of books you could go back and reread to find out. Exactly. And how can people find you and get in touch with you? Because I know that my listeners are going to be interested in finding out more about what you're doing and as your business evolves. Yep. If you go to TomMorkes.com, T-O-M-M-O-R-K-E-S.com, that's the best place to find me. You'll see, you can, I have a bunch of free courses, stuff on pay what you want pricing, book marketing and book sales, like the book publishing stuff I've done, pretty much everything I've done, I've created a free course around it. So if you go there, you'll find that. I have a bunch of pay what you want books starting at zero or a dollar or something like that. So contribute or don't, you don't have, doesn't matter. You don't have to, it's not like a guilty type thing, but check that out. So you just go to tomworks.com, you'll find all those resources. And then of course you can sign up for my newsletter. So just tomworks.com slash newsletter. It's another great place where I, I'm starting to publish more consistently on that too. That's taking up a little bit of my time because I put a lot of time and effort into those as well. But if you sign up, then you'll get my latest blog posts. You'll get my newsletters that are exclusive just to the newsletter. So kind of my insights that are kind of very rough and raw. And if that's interesting to you as somebody who's doing something online related, so if you like online business, online marketing, you might get a kick out of that newsletter as well. I know I get a lot of good feedback from it. So check it out, TomMorcus.com and TomMorcus.com slash newsletter. That's great. And we will put links to all of that in the show notes as well. Very easy, low friction ways for people to get involved in what you're doing. So no excuses. Exactly. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate meeting you. This has been fascinating. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the questions. They were awesome. And I hope your audience like, likes it a lot. I'm sure they will. Thanks again. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>